You're listening to Finding My Own Weird, where we'll follow yours truly on a journey to discover my own authentic weird self. I'm your host, Christine Lassiter. Joining me will be amazing guests who found their own formula and are living and thriving as their own wonderfully weird selves. So hold on tight. It's about to get weird. A while back, I was at a party with my girlfriends, and one of them turned to me and said, you just have to have a story for everything, don't you? It was harsh and accusatory, and it crushed me. All I could think about was how annoying I must be to others, and the only way to not be annoying was to be quiet. And that sat with me for a long time. When I moved away from Texas, I moved away from those friends. I can look back and see that I was invited, but not included. I was on the fringe of that group for so many years. Once I got to Portland, I followed every What's Happening in Portland event app there was. And then one day I came across a notice for an upcoming podcast recording at a local bar. I was still new in Portland, so I went by myself. When I walked in, I was the only person there that was not directly connected to the host. But he loved it. He was just so excited that somebody else was interested in what he was doing. And I I can relate to that on so many levels. Several months later, I was on his podcast telling one of my stories. After that, we went to several storytelling events in Portland. And even though they were all different from each other, they were all amazing. And then I came across Telltale. I loved it. It was in this funky old church and the people there were just so real. Fast forward, and I ended up on that stage three times, twice for storytelling, and once fulfilling a dream to perform stand-up comedy. Yep, the stand-up grandma, you know, Gigi or whatever. And nobody looked annoyed and nobody looked bored. They, they laughed, they were engaged, they even applauded. I came to discover it's not me or my storytelling, it's the company that I keep that makes the difference. I love telling stories, and I have some awesome ones. Remind me to tell you about the time I had to tell a 93-year-old and an 87-year-old that they had to stop having sex. I love making people laugh. Love being the center of attention. It's who I am. So today, I celebrate this loud, chatty person that I am. And hey, I have my own podcast, so I get to talk as much as I damn well please. But I'm also going to listen a lot because people are fascinating and have so much to say. Today, I'm talking to Jasmine, host and founder of Telltale, a monthly curated storytelling show in Portland, who thinks that you should drink more water, stop at looking bugs, make all your pie crust by hand, and draw all your ghosts with knees. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. So I actually met you. Um, you do a storytelling event, Telltale, and I met you when I saw that and have actually been on your show a few times, mm-hmm. um, which is so cool. But thank you. you know, it's really cool. I enjoy it so much. You you are a, such a creative person. Like you can see it on you. Like you're like one of those people that just exude creativity and, and interesting. Um, so I want to kind of talk about uh, you know, where Jasmine kind of started, where, where you grew up and kind of 
you know, your journey to get to where you are now, which is, you know, listening to other people's stories. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, where you started. Yeah. I started out in Orsa, Indiana, which is a pretty small town um, and that I wanted to get out of as soon as I could. And a lot of my younger years were pretty based around the idea that like, I, this is not forever. I cannot be here forever. Life is going to be not worth it if I have to stay here forever. All right. Um, I was a very sad kid because of that and just fairly lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, the town was super religious. We were not super religious. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up unschooled, which is even more loose than homeschooling. And there was a, a lot of homeschooled folks there, but they were super religious. So I wasn't allowed to be part of that basically so since I wasn't what, religious. What is, what is unschooled? So unschooling. Is, the, is like homeschooling in that you don't go to school, but homeschooling frequently still brings school home in a way. So they're, you're bringing home textbooks. There's still a curriculum. There's still expectations. Depending on what state you live in, there also might be a lot of like benchmarks or, or testing and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Unschooling is the idea of that it, the learning is completely child-led. So it is going to be whatever the kid is interested in, foster that and let them just like run with that for as long as they're interested in something. Even now, I know that I am far more likely to actually retain information if I'm learning about something that I care about. And if you force me to study something that, that I don't right. have any interest in, it like doesn't, it doesn't stick. I can get the information in, but it doesn't like hang out there. Did you learn like things like the basics, like ABCs? And I mean, I can read. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I was surrounded by books um, and really loved reading. And, and uh, there's I like my first journal which is where I'm like faking cursive, just like the loops and everything. I couldn't write. I didn't know how to write, but it's just like loops and trying because I thought writing was cool. Um, So, and there's like some stuff, even politics. I did not learn about any, anything about like the different, like the houses or any of of that stuff, you know? And, and it's fine. Mm -hmm. Like if your kid doesn't learn that stuff, it's kind of just fine. I learned stuff. Right. And I was super independent and I worked a lot and met a lot of people, not people my age. Primarily I was talking to adults, which does make for a different kind of growing up. But it also, I was much more interested in what adults had to say than folks my age in general. Well, since you, since you didn't attend school and weren't a part of the, um, the homeschool groups and stuff, I mean, was it difficult to make friends? Yeah, I didn't have many of those at that time, which, you know, is part of like the sad kid stuff. Yeah. But I also didn't really want to be friends with the people that were around. It didn't make sense to me. They did not ever seem on the same page as me. Um, it was mostly focused. Like I, I read a lot. I worked a lot and was focused on like, what are the what are the different things that I could do to like leave, even if it's temporary. Right. So I made friends online once the Internet was like suddenly becoming a thing in my right. late teens. Um, I would go visit those folks on Greyhound starting when I was like 13 oh, wow. and would go and hang out with friends in different parts of the state. It's um, a progressive parents then, huh? In some ways. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I'm just like super independent. And I think that at some point there was probably this feeling of like, it's going to be worse if we tell her no. So we're just going to let this happen. It's <laughs> uh, to have less of a power struggle. Right. About stuff. So, so you met people online. I mean, not being a part of those groups, were you, did you feel like outcast with those um, homeschool groups and the others in the community? Yeah. I mean, there were a handful of folks that I tried to hang out with that we had like some stuff in common or people that were a little more flexible about the fact that we weren't religious. Um, 
I still think that a lot of those folks maybe were hanging out with us with the theory that they would like convert us Changing. eventually. Yes. Um, and so when that didn't happen and things would kind of peter out, um, I was also just like not interested in the things that the kids my age were interested in. I really like I wanted to like read stuff that they weren't allowed to read. I would watch movies and then um, by the time like my friend would come over to watch movies and she wasn't allowed to watch a movie that had like more than five swear words. So when it hit five, we'd have to turn it off because you know, that's how a rule should work. That's a that's a funny thing. Like you can hear five, but if you hear six, absolutely impossible. Oh, no, you're going to hell, mm-hmm. straight straight to hell. The uh, that same friend. That's seven. That's eight. I might have added more sex words. and candy. That song by Marcy yeah. Playground. Um, she would like sing along to it in the car, but she couldn't say the word sex. Yeah, and so there was, she would have to like self censor, right? Because she couldn't say the word sex, which is not a bad word. It is like a totally normal thing that like. Most people dig. <laughs> I was ready to leave pretty, pretty, right. pretty swiftly. Um, I, I worked, uh, or you know, I sold like one million Girl Scout cookies so I could, because if you did it, you could earn camp credit and Five like million? leave. Well, it, it's hyperbolic, but as many as possible right. <laughs> because then you would earn camp credit and then right. I, you could go away to summer camp, mm-hmm. which was not in my town. And just right. anything to like get out and do something else and be around different people and like have adventures. Uh, and then... We, my parents, um, I had always wanted them to leave out of that area and they didn't want to do it and they didn't want to do it and they couldn't afford it and it wasn't going to happen. When I was 16, I went to a summer camp for homeschooled kids out here in Oregon and I loved it. I stepped off the train uh, and I took the like Amtrak out here from Indiana mm-hmm. um, when I was 16, stepped off the train at the station and was just like totally in love in like a... Like, if you can fall in love, like, love at first sight with a, a city in the same way you would, like, a prom, like, where everything else gets fuzzy and you're just, like, looking at the one uh-huh. thing. It was like that, but with a whole town. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and been there. then we went around, out, out to the summer camp, which was not in, it was, like, in Myrtle Creek. I never remember if it's Myrtle Creek or Myrtle Wood, but one of those. Um, so we went to the summer camp, came home, and I was like, that is where we're going. I'm, we're going here instead. My parents finally were like, we're going to move. Let's Let's go. And they decided to go to a really small town in Texas, which did not make sense to me. That was not going to fix any of the problems that we had trying to be in Indiana. It's not like that was going to be like a liberal bastion out there. Oh, no. No, not at all. No. Uh, My mom also cannot handle heat. And so that did not make sense to me. Yeah. There's a few places that you don't go if you can't handle heat. I lived there for 43 years. Still couldn't handle. I was raised in lived there. Couldn't handle heat. No, you don't don't like it. No. So I just pitched like this like massive campaign of like how moving to Texas is stupid and we were not doing that. And right. the whole family is moving to Portland instead. Mm-hmm. And I printed out a lot of stuff and I was um, very passionate about my opinion about this. And I ultimately won. And so my parents were like, OK, we're going to move to Portland. My mom, who had never flown anywhere by herself in her life, got on a plane, came out here, realtor picked her up at the airport. She went and toured houses for a day and a half, put an offer in on one. Uh, out here in Gresham, actually, where this studio is, not that far. Wow. Um, and flew back. I went to summer camp that second year, so a year to pass in between these things, um, and then met them out in Oregon after the summer camp had ended. Um, and we've been here ever since. Wow. And I met my partner when I was 16 at that first year of summer camp. And then when I was 18, we got married and they came out here with me. And so this summer we'll have been together for 22 years. Where was your partner from that they were in that summer camp? They, yeah. Yes. Uh, Colorado. Wow. I mean, like, that's that's insane. 
Yeah, just like the number, I, I frequently think of the number of decisions and and happenstance and luck that had to fall into place to end up at the same year of a certain summer camp. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know the camp existed until I saw it in an, an ad in the back of Home Educators magazine. So my mom had to have, like, decided to get a subscription to that. Otherwise, right. I probably would never have seen it. Right. And uh, I was only looking at it because in the back of that magazine, they had a list of, like, homeschooled pen pals from across the country. So I was like looking for the pen pal ads and happened to see this other ad for the camp in the middle of it. And I had saved up enough money to be able to afford what felt like an astronomical amount for a week of camp because right. it was like $400 or something, which is like nothing now. Yeah. Um, but at the time I, I had like <laughs> saved so like I saved so hard to be able to afford like the train ride and the uh, the camp itself. And but that everything fell into place in order. And one of the things that came out of that was like meeting my, meeting my person. Wow. So you got here to Portland. Did you still feel the same way about it? Are you still in love with it? Yeah, pretty head over heels. And and you know, I still am. We've been here mm-hmm. for um like twenty two mm-hmm. years now. And it it still gives me a lot of the same feelings. The city has changed a lot. Right. Um, which there are pros and cons too. I th- I also think that as a person who arrived I felt weird, I felt odd, but it the city really felt like a really good fit for me and I've had this feeling that like, oh, this must be a city that's welcoming to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know until much later on. I was like, no, you it's super welcoming to you because like I'm white. Right, right. And so there's definitely like it's problematic in its own ways and has like a nasty history that is is part of it. And so I try and always think about that when I'm like so grateful for how comfortable I feel here. Right. That is not everybody gets to feel that way about it. But when I interviewed um Kevin Cook, Poison Waters, um he was raised in primarily white areas and he's this blew me away he said when he moved to portland it was the most uh black area he'd ever been in i was like what <laughs> i mean this is the most diverse place i'd ever lived in because i came yeah. from this like, super small town in indiana that didn't have anybody else other than white people well you can have diversity there was a lot of diversity where i came from and still a lot of hatred and um racism so (laughs) so yeah that doesn't that doesn't necessarily solve the problem having more of a certain population um (laughs) so when you got here i mean kind of where did y'all pick up from there when you got first started here bright-eyed you just moved to the city that you fell in love with Uh, i mean we moved in with my parents for the first like six or nine months um which went really terribly um, had a falling out with them pretty swiftly and I haven't talked to them in many years. Like they're out here, but I'm not in touch with those folks. Um, and so a lot of it was just trying to like get our, get our feet. So we moved out here at a time that, you know, December, 2001, that was like really, really challenging to find jobs. We tried really hard. It took a lot of effort to finally like land our first jobs, which were, um, in the food, food court of the Lloyd center. I worked at all American and ice cream for the first couple of weeks and then left because the boss was a misogynist Mm -hmm. and went across the food court to work at Paradise Bakery instead. My partner kept working at All-American Ice Cream and Frozen Yogurt, um, which is, uh, I think, I think maybe just recently closed, but it might still be there. But we would cross the food court from each other so we could wave and take breaks at the same time. (laughs) And that was kind of where we we were starting out. We, We hung out there a lot. We met, started to meet people because we didn't really know. We had one other friend in town from the same camp that had moved here and so we hung out with him a lot but that it was just just starting out because you know we were young i was i moved out when i was 17 yeah and so um 
had to wait till I was 18 to get her better apartment so I could actually sign a lease legally and just trying to get trying to get settled trying to like make our whatever our life was going to look like out here my partner was supposed to come out here temporarily and go back to Colorado for college and had gotten accepted and then came out here with me and was like no I'm not going back (laughs) we're staying and we've been here ever since well that's awesome so after after your stand at Lloyd Center, you know, where did y'all go from there? Um, I went from Lloyd Center to, let's see, uh, a movie theater on 82nd. And then, it feels so long ago now. Um, and then I worked at a porn store for a couple of years. And then I worked at a bakery. And then I worked at a different porn store. And then I worked at Tub and Tan, which is on like 82nd and Stark, which is, is like hot tubbing by the hour. And tanning beds. That seems sketchier than the porn stores. Yes. <laughs> um, because a hot tub for one hour rental is cheaper than a hotel. Oh. And so, and, and like sex work is great. Like, no, it absolutely. is. Absolutely. So, yeah, but I don't want to be in a it, hot tub. It was a very, yeah, I mean, it was unclean and I do not recommend it. Right. Um, lots of sketchy things. The oh, boss yeah. of that was place was a bad man. Um, who was very mean and uh I I had to be involved in some like sketchy shit. Oh man. Um there was definitely a day where he came in, he called me and was like, Hey, a guy's coming in um to pick up something from you. Mm-hmm. Um can you like give it to him? And I was like, I guess. And then so he like described where it was and so he was like, Go into the back in this back hallway, get the ladder, and go up into the second light fixture from the left. And there was like a, there was like a bunch of cash in a little thing. And he's like, give that to him. He's going to give you something. And I was like, what are you getting what? involved in, dude? But I was like 20. Right. Like, I didn't, I was just, I, and I really needed the job. You and, just do what and, you do. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so but, did you see more characters at like porn shop and, and hot tub place than you did at the bakery? I mean, was there more like interesting the bakery i was mostly in the back of the house i was actually doing the baking and so i was just mostly hanging out with the staff there um but i mean every every job has its weirdos and and different a different brand of weirdos uh the porn store was next door to a bar and so people just get like really really drunk and come in and laugh or or be weird or buy stuff or shoplift a lot um (laughs) a a porn store on like 82nd and powell is just it was lively uh yeah i can imagine in Mm -hmm. that area it would be unfortunately 82nd like a shocking number of times the movie theater was on 82nd the porn store the second porn store and tub and tan were like all right in that same like 82nd strip did you live nearer that area? Not at all. I've always <laughs> lived in Northeast and North. And, but that was just uh, jobs, man. You got to pay rent. You got to pay rent. You just roll with whatever it is. And what people do in their own time, as long as it's not hurting anybody else. Absolutely. And I, it was fun. Yeah. And I do, I feel like uh, working at the porn store was a really, was really good practice for being able to like talk to anybody about anything. Right. And so people coming in and wanting to buy their first dildo or their first vibrator or look for like a a rental for them and their partner or whatever and being like very embarrassed. Right. And trying so, and depending on the person, like if they came in really embarrassed and like shy, I was really happy to go and and talk about the different products and what you could expect and what you were looking for and what would 
fit your, your vibe or not and and be really like supportive to that. Right. If somebody was an asshole, it was fun to just like mess with them. Right. Of course. Uh, one of the things <laughs> you would do with the vibrators is like you, um, if people wanted to like check out a couple different kinds, you'd bring them up, you'd open them up and put batteries in so they could just kind of like hold them and see what the different, you know, textures, weights, sure. um, vibrations were or whatever. But people would get like, if they were being an asshole to me, I would just like turn them on and set them down on the glass case in front of you, which is so loud. Right. And so then they would always like have to grab them and pick them up and they would get like really embarrassed <laughs> and, and they deserved that. Uh, I mean, it was like a gross job and and uh, not always like the safest. And right. um, and I got to practice talking to people about anything and just being like really comfortable with whatever people were talking about whatever people were saying hung out with a lot of strippers um helped hung out in like the dressing room helping people get dressed into their corsets or whatever a lot to like test them out mm-hmm. lacing up a lot of like stripper heels that are like thigh high and whatever on people um and but like the next stuff i did was like social work and i feel like all of what i've learned from working at the porn store was like a direct was able to be like directly applied to my ability to be in social work and be able to talk to people about anything and everything without judgment or or having a big reaction on my face if people are sharing like odd things. People don't even realize what kind of skills they're gaining in different like if you when you started there, you didn't probably think, wow, this is going to be really good practice for a career I'm going to have later. Not That's so going to be very, you know, important to a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I guess it's. The right vibrator is important to some people, but, uh, you know, yeah, you go absolutely. on to do things that are a little bit more. Um... <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of my jobs like had like uh, transferable skills I didn't expect. Right. So working at the Girl Scout camp when I was like 15 mm-hmm. and watching 32 six to seven year olds definitely came in handy later on as far as big groups of people and trying to manage different, Her- different forms cats. of chaos. Hurting mm-hmm. cats, <laughs> giving direction to people who don't always listen to direction. Mm-hmm. I think you do some of that now. And uh, <laughs> sure. no, that's really cool. So so you went from kind of those kind of interesting jobs and you went, that's when you got into social work at that point? Yeah. My boss at the porn store, um, her boyfriend, they 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 wanted to hang out with me a lot. They would bring me places. I was, that's because you're cool. But I, mean? I was also vulnerable. Oh. I was like only a couple of years out of small town. I was 20. Um, she would sneak me into bars all the time because she was like this, this like porn store owner. And so she was like, whatever. She knew everybody. Yeah. And so she would bring me places. She would get me very drunk. Um, and there were just enough times where I would be at her house after that. And when her boyfriend would put his hand on my knee and then I would take it off and, and he would try again. And then my hours started getting cut soon after that stuff. Mm. And I was like, I think that I'm going to be fired. Right. From this place soon. And I told my friend that. And he was like, well, they're hiring for peer mentors at my job. And I was and I had always understood peer mentors to be folks that were like the head experience, like personal experience with substance use recovery. Right. And so I was like that. I, I do not like that is I'm not in recovery. And he was like, no, I think you have skills. I think you have stuff like not. You don't absolutely have to be in recovery to to apply. And so I was like, all right. And I went and I applied for it. And the application process was really long. It's like an interview and then a second interview and like all these steps. And I did get fired yeah. uh, and then hadn't heard back from the, that job. So I was like, whatever. And then so I went and applied this other porn store down the street, um, got that, worked there for maybe like a month. And while this like interview process was still happening mm-hmm. for the peer mentor position and shocked myself to find out that I had gotten it. Wow. 
Uh, so went to start doing my first social work job completely accidentally based on needing to pay rent. It was not my goal. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Um, I think that when I was much younger, I thought I would be a writer or a journalist. Sure. And then I got older and was like, that is hard and not totally realistic. And then I thought I would probably be a waitress forever. <laughs> and lo and behold, the writing stuff actually did come back around much later. Right, but after right. a really big like hiatus. Well, it's remarkable that no high school diploma, no social work license, but you were able to get into this field mm-hmm. and work with people who really needed some TLC and some good listening and some good guidance. Um, so, I mean, how did you, how did you adapt to that? I mean, I, th- I felt like a big fake for a minute, um, just like a big opposer mm-hmm. and, and it was also just really fun. So the whole, the position that was created, it's like a training position. So it's specifically made for folks that didn't have any experience in the field yet. Right. They were fairly young. So like around the same age as the participants in the program. So I started when I was 21. Uh, and they, it, there's just a ton of training involved. So it's like really supportive and, and there was a lot of structure to it to be able to like ramp you up and, and make you feel confident and like competent at, at the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did that position for three years and then I changed into a different program at the same place. They had gotten a big grant for a different program that was working for folks with like, uh, severe and persistent mental illnesses and and also substance use like a mix of the two and so I was like an intake person and home visit person uh, for that program for five years Mm -hmm. and then I and then when that grant ended my position stopped there was and so I thought I was gonna have to go back to other stuff um and then at the same time magically they're a alcohol and drug counselor in that original program with the peer mentors Mm -hmm. opened up and so I was able to stay there and then go be an alcohol and drug counselor, which you have to be have. So now I have a certificate of alcohol and drug counseling, which is a CADC. And you didn't even um, make it yourself. You, you earned it, It was right? a real one. It was a real <laughs> one. Uh, and I, so I went and got the certificate and which you don't have to go to school for. You can do with just like five little like workshops uh-huh. and then a big test right. and work, work hours that you count up. Um, and did that for a handful of years. And then I kept whining that like the program does not work because there is not anybody coordinating it. There really needs to be somebody in charge of this at all. Mm-hmm. And I whined enough about that. They were like, fine, you can be in charge of it. Just <laughs> coordinated already. You had your, so I got a raise. Just like with your parents, maybe into. Yes. Um, or you, you when, had, I, you when I get a thought. Major case. When I get a thought, I'm very hard to get off the case. Um, and so then I was the coordinator of the program for a couple of years. And then they made me a manager. And it's always been a fairly small team. But then Measure 110 passed uh, a year or two ago now, and that was something that we all voted on, and that was to fund, like, additional substance use supports in the county. And so we got a ton of money, Mm -hmm. um, and so my team went from, like, three people to ten people. Wow. And so now I'm managing a team of ten instead, and I'm able to continue bringing on other, like, young folks who have never done anything in the field before. And able to like train them and support them in order and ramp them up to be really awesome peer supports for folks. Well, back when you were a peer supporter, what are some of the things that you would do in that position? Yeah, it was primarily individual, like hanging out with folks individually or hanging out with folks in a group. 
So doing a lot of like rec activities. There's there's a drop-in center where I was worked, and so we would go in there. It was a drop-in center for like homeless youth, and so we would right. go in there and hang out with folks. And one of the things about early recovery is that it is tremendously boring. You everything that you were doing all the time you can't do anymore, and all of a sudden all these these hours of downtime stretch out in front of you, mm-hmm. and you you just get so so bored. And so one of the things we try to do is have as many like recreational activities as possible. And so we would take people to the movies or like play basketball in the park and have bubble tea, or um, go bowling, or we would like. We like toured the bowling alley and got to go in the back and like see the how the pin setters worked, uh, or went to like Stumptown like and watched them like roast coffee all day and then got bags of coffee to take home with them, and so it was a lot of just like filling up time, um, but also the like for very good reason, uh, homeless youth are mistrustful of adults and especially oh. adults in institutions, so like staff at places like that, and so one of the really cool parts of that position is that you were able to uh, kind of like form relationships with people who are not so keen on forming relationships with staff and mm. them not having those relationships is a big barrier to them being able to like get housing or get other types of support or like accomplishing the stuff they wanted to do. And so we were able to kind of like get ourselves in there and be more approachable folks mm-hmm. because it didn't really feel like if you, that you were like making a relationship with staff, right. if I'm just like playing cards on the floor with you all day. Right. And trying to kind of set those relationships up with the people that are like more resistant and like and more skeptical. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sitting in, you know, trying to do counseling with somebody you know, or, you know, or in counseling with a counselor that you don't know, that you don't have a relationship and, and you, they're wanting you to, you know, spill all your emotions and everything. It's very, very difficult. But, mm-hmm. but a pal, mm-hmm. you know, in one of those, I mean, that's got to be like a stair step almost to... Mm-hmm. Once you feel this trust and and comfort, then moving a little further in the program's got to be a little bit more, more comfortable for them. Yeah, and I was able to like vouch for their case manager and be like, "Hey, like I'm, I think this is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Do you want to come like meet him? Like I'll come with you, right? Um, or like helping people get to um medical appointments or their DHS appointments or yeah. any of that stuff, and like helping them like connect and coordinate." All those systems are like set up to be the they're, the hardest, they're worst so, possible thing. They're so hard. Yeah, and that's for me. Like oh. I, it is hard to coordinate and like work among in those programs for me. And I am not a person currently homeless with a like using drugs, with a bunch of trauma, with a bunch of mental health stuff happening. Mm-hmm. So it, like the fact that we expect those folks to be able to independently right. do that is absurd. It is. I mean, I you know, you and you know because I'm talked to you a little bit but we've had we've had some struggles in yeah. our family with that kind of stuff and i'm very 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 resourceful and it's hard as hell it's so it's hard. hard as hell and there's a whole lot of hey this might be an avenue no oh, that's not going to work for you here this might so it's it's so valuable to have some some resources mm-hmm. and some guidance because i mean i'm like you i i'm not homeless i'm not going through mental health issues i'm not going you know i'm not addicted to anything i i have electricity and i have wi-fi i have all of the things that you need that works and it is it's damn near impossible yeah and so i mean i just i mean it makes me a little bit emotional because um you know i not everybody even has a support person that can 
be looking mm-hmm. for them. So to have a place, uh, it just is, I mean, it's remarkable. So, so what do you do kind of now? I mean, that's what you did when you were doing. So now I manage that, that program. Mm -hmm. So I hire on all of those peer mentors and train them and support them and get them all ramped up to do the stuff that I used to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It is always their first social work job. It is frequently their first job. Right. And so I'm hiring a lot of folks that are like, 18 to 23. Right. Um, so they're very young and they have lived experience with either substance use stuff, mental health stuff, homelessness, or a mix of all of those things, mm-hmm. um, which just means they got a little more going on that you have to like be a little bit like soft with when giving them feedback or right. or knowing that they are in, like it, it is a tough job, even when you're mostly doing fun stuff. Yeah. It is still tough. Um, and I mean, people that we care about die all the time Yeah. Um, or have terrible things happen or they do terrible things mm-hmm. or whatever mix of, the, of that stuff. And it is really heartbreaking to watch somebody that you've tried so hard to do stuff with not make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that so it really balances out that sometimes we're able to like teach uh, roller skating lessons and uh-huh. just have it, be, have it be really, really fun because it breaks your heart the rest of the time. I need roller skating lessons. We're setting it up right now. It's going to be like dance skate. So it's like not just roller skating, but like like dance moves at the same time. Oh, my God. That we're going to start offering for the homeless youth that we work with pretty soon. Maybe if I volunteer, I can come work. <laughs> it's going to be pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. So, I mean, so how do you support your staff? Because you can be good at something and it can still wreck you. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do how do you support your staff and yourself dealing with these individuals that are in crisis more times than they're not in the aftermath of all of that? I mean, Im- imperfectly. Yeah, that's. I mean, I don't and, think there is a perfect yeah, way to do so. We we do our best, um, folks. It it is tough. It is heartbreaking. We had someone pass away mm-hmm. this week, and it. We get a lot of PTO. Mm-hmm. I, I really encourage oh, people to take a lot of time off. Mm-hmm. Um, we offer critical incident leave. So even if you don't have PTO, anytime something like scary or traumatic or hard or intense happens, people can get like up to two days off mm-hmm. for that paid. Right. Um, and so we make sure I really encourage people to actually like take advantage of that resource. Yeah. Um, we have like EAP counseling sources that you can like go and get like three or four um counseling sessions like per incident right that happens so there's that kind of stuff we do regular supervision i try and just make myself really really available mm-hmm. for people um there's a ton of flexibility so if you're like maybe you're having a really hard time this week because of some intense stuff that happened maybe this week you do a lot of behind the scenes like computer work or learning work i just had somebody that was really sick but really wanted to like didn't but like didn't have the hours mm-hmm. to be homesick right but i was like you can't come to work um, and so just like sent him home with some like videos to watch. And he just like learned a whole bunch of like queer culture information and was extremely touched by it. Right. Well, that's valuable, too. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, you know, not necessarily it doesn't all have to be all in person with with the individuals. I mean, the the resources that you gain by training materials. I mean, I, I used to work with Alzheimer's and, you know, I went to a training that, I mean, just blew me away with how you could work with those individuals, mm-hmm. um, even though I dealt with them all day, every day, going and learning something new, something, a different approach. Mm-hmm. It was the best friends approach, and it was amazing. It's kind of similar in that where 
you're not telling them to take a bath. You're like, oh, we're going to go do something cool. Let's, you know. Yeah. It's it's similar. Like you build that trust, like what you did with mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the, the relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, um, Portland is known for having, although I hate that people say that because you can go everywhere and there is the homeless, the mental health, the substance abuse. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. We do have quite a bit of that here. With that grant that came through, have you seen that help start to really, it's been a couple of years now, you said? We voted on it a couple of years ago. Okay. For anybody listening to this who's mad about Measure 110 not working yet and still seeing homeless people, we voted on it a couple of years ago. Only actually got the money a couple months ago. Oh, okay. And so it is, I just recently hired my whole staff. So it's very new. People right. are people are already trying to repeal it because they are very angry that it hasn't fixed it. And they were just like throwing money at people who use drugs because people hate people who use drugs and right. they hate people that are homeless, which breaks my damn heart all yeah. the time. But we just recently got the money. It's only up like really recently, like actually staffed and up and running and starting to move. It It's going to be imperfect. Mm-hmm. And we, my team and my my program really specifically is a harm reduction approach. So I am not trying to convince people to stop using drugs. Right. Because that doesn't work. Right. So harm reduction is assuming that people are going to continue doing risky stuff, whether it be drugs or self-harm or whatever else. But I want, while they're doing those things, I want them to do it in the safest way possible. Right. I want them to have close supportive connections. So mm-hmm. if they choose to stop doing it or make changes around it, they already know people that can support them to do that. And it also just trusts that those people are experts on their own lives and gives them a lot of autonomy that I am not going to come in and try and change anything about them. Right. People talk a lot about people having potential. Mm-hmm. Like this person has so much potential. But that means that person is going to be really awesome once they change, which is not fair. Right. And so I try really hard to think of how amazing people are now with all of the weird flaws and imperfections mm-hmm. and all of that stuff that comes with them. It, the, in the way that they are right now. Right. I care very much about people who use drugs. I love people who use drugs. People use drugs for really, really good reasons. Yeah. And especially if you are homeless, why would you not want to get high and not experience that and, every day forever? And escape. Yeah. And escape in any way. And all that of you us can. escape. Yeah. All of us do it. I do not eat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We all find different ways. And, and some ways are going to have more harm on your body and some of them are going to have less harm. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. And you get to decide whether whether that works for you or not. So I'm never going to like tell anybody that they have to get sober if they don't want to get sober. And I'm going to give them a whole bunch of care and compassion and and care about them very, very much right now in whatever life situation they've got going on for them and invite them to go roller skating with us or go whitewater rafting or whatever. And sometimes that's enough that people do want to make some changes around their substance right. use. And sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they die anyway. Yeah. And... That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's such a controversial thing. It's not to me. I fully understand. And even more so now after having some experiences lately. But if I come from and everything, it's such a controversial thing to be like, no, they should be locked up. And I'm like, oh, my God. Can you imagine you're in this situation? You are that. Let me say this right now. Normal, everyday people. With lots of support, lots of love, lots of resources can end up in this situation. Yes. 100%. I'm saying this. I need you to hear me. I wish I could tell you more, but I need you to know it doesn't matter 
this, they, any, anybody can end up in this situation and being locked in a jail cell will never be the answer to that no. because that is not the problem. It will exacerbate everything. Everything. The, the time, the compassion, the love, the support, the just being seen, heard, all of those things will at least touch the problem. And I, I'm right there with you. We've had things backwards for so long. And we see that it doesn't, it didn't fix anything. Yeah. So I'm, I'm. Ex- we still blame the person oh. instead of the system that created it. It's, it's Anytime horrible. somebody talks about like the homeless problem, I, I'm just like, but that still puts it on, I mean, it is a problem, but you're still putting it on the person. Like yeah. they, like they fucked up, like they are the mistake instead of like the generations of shit that we have done mm-hmm. to our like structures and our city and our politics and, and whatever that have created yeah. all of this and how much it disproportionately affects people of color oh, and absolutely. people with mental illness and and all, LGBTQ all yeah. and you know, oh. anyway, <laughs> yeah, it's infuriating. <laughs> it is. Uh, you and I both share a passion about that. Um, <laughs> so, and most of us are the vast majority of the people that live in this city and many cities are approximately three missed paychecks away from homelessness oh, it, at all times. In the pandemic, it really impacted ev- everybody. Everybody, except maybe Jeff Bezos. But I mean, it impacted everybody mm-hmm. so traumatically that those that were, that, those that were teetering fell off. Yep. Those that were two steps from teetering fell off. It's because you didn't fall off personally. I mean, you have to understand how this was already issues and problems. But when this happened, when the world shut down, it just devastated people financially, mentally, emotionally. You lost income. You lost human connection you mm-hmm. lost um I, I i can't even think of a thing we didn't lose during that time it was a really wild time to work at to like be at my work right. too because it, we worked through the whole pandemic we were not working from home yeah um because homeless Essential. people sure Essential are workers. homeless <laughs> during the pandemic as well right um and also have nowhere else to go normally they're like hanging out in our space but then they have somewhere else to go they'll mm-hmm. go hang out at mcdonald's they'll go hang out at nothing was open right they usually hang out at the library library's closed um, there's just like nowhere yeah. else to go nowhere. for people. And it was, and just like, it very, it's very challenging to get folks to wear masks depending on their wellness at mm-hmm. the time. Um, if you are homeless, your hygiene, like you you cannot wash hands as much as you're supposed to if you're living in a tent outside. Right. Um, so it was definitely a tough time for staff just trying to figure out how to like still come to work every day in, right. in that space. And, and scary. And, <laughs> And trying to figure out what staff could do that and who had were like immunocompromised could not do that. Right. Well, so speaking of the pandemic, that's where you made a little shift. And well, actually, I, actually, it was after the election, wasn't it? That you made a shift. Mm-hmm. Um, the Trump election. Um, mm-hmm. You made a shift in some personal things that you needed to do. And that's when you came up with your your child, which is Telltale. Yeah. So Telltale, yeah, it came up during, after the the election. Uh, that we, at some point, will be, so far in the past, we won't even have to call it anything <sighs> anymore. But 
Um, the 2016 election <laughs> when I was really, really mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, one of the only things that I understand is that if you care about people, everything that's happened in the last many years, but especially these last handful of years, it has been traumatic for people. And one of the only things that has proven to counteract trauma is community. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out what my community was because I was, I needed some of that. And it was really tough for me to figure out what my community was and like where, how to plug into that because it needed also to be like meaningful right. community. And so, you know, on one, I, and, and some people were like writing postcards and I was like, yeah, I can write postcards to like, you know, but like, that's just like not a lot. And like a lot of people were marching and I, um, I was like, go, that's a lot of people. Um, and also of a sh- shitty spine. I can't really walk a ton. And and so I was like, I can't really go do it. But like, what is it? What is my community? What is the thing that I can do? Right. And so I, when I couldn't figure out what my community was, I was like, oh, never mind. I will make one. And that happened around the same time as I went to with a friend to uh, go see her read um, at a storytelling show. And I had never done that before mm-hmm. other, other than like the moth. But I thought that was like the only option. Right. Um, but it was a, a show that Wild Fang, like the clothing store yeah. had at the time. And so it was just like in their store. And went and saw her do it. It was fun. Um, and then afterwards, everybody was like, you should do it. And I was like, wait, what? What? No, mm-mm. I don't like um, I don't like public speaking and I don't like a lot of attention. And I and then I impulsively was just like, yeah, OK. And then signed up for it. And so I went to Wild Fang and I did the show and I read a story um, and I was like. I don't want to admit how much I want. I liked that. And how much validation and like, it felt like the, I was like, I might die of anxiety, but if I don't die of anxiety, I'm also like the fucking king of the world right, right now. Right. That was like the coolest thing. A little high. And, and yeah, totally like over the moon mm-hmm. about it now since I didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it was like, oh, I would like to find more pl- places to do that. Right. And so these things were kind of like happening in concert with each other. It's like, I needed more community. And I also was trying to figure out other places I could go read. And I couldn't find more places to go read. Like it just, there weren't a lot of places that weren't because uh, we have the moth here, but the moth is competitive. You have to be like good at it. Right. Uh, and that means a whole lot of people don't ever get to do it. Um, you also are not allowed to read off papers. And I don't know. My brain is not a brain that like can can memorize stuff and then just say it. Right. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out what the other option was. And so we were like, never mind. Let's just make one. Mm-hmm. Let's just make a storytelling show. And that. It. I feel like it was one of those things where if you told a younger version of me that I would do that, it would have been like, fuck off all the way. <laughs> but that does not make sense with any of the, like with your anxiety and with your like uh, fear of other people judging you and all of that stuff. Like that is not, that is not compute. Like what right. are you doing? <laughs> um, and I told a couple of my friends and they were like, okay, what? That's not, it like did not line up with me at the time. Right. Um, And then we decided we would do it in June. I think it was June 2017 was the first one. And it was, I started with that person that did the Wild Fang show with me. We started it together. Um, it was clunky, but fine. Um, had a huge falling out with that other person. Immediately no longer part of the show. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll just do it without her. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And then it was like way easier to do it without her. Um, and now we've been going for five and a half years. Um, like cl- Almost closer to six now. So like we're in our sixth sixth season of doing it. We took when COVID hit, we took like six months off, and then we did like a year plus of it on Zoom, mm-hmm. which was a 
pros and cons. <laughs> I did enjoy the fact that I was like in my pajamas and after the show was over, I could immediately go to bed. Right. And versus like being all the way across town, packing up and Clean having this up. whole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was also it, it brought community, but it also was totally different. Right. And so we're very glad to be back and actually doing it in person, still masked at this point. But definitely gives the, the community vibe back. Well, yeah, I, I, I've been to them in the audience. I've been there and done storytelling. I even did my very first and so far only stand-up stand comedy, comedy <laughs> which is such a cool thing to to check off of my bucket list. Yeah. Um, and, and it works, too. People uh, were laughing. I, you know, hey, it was better than the one I saw last night. That was bad. Bad comedy. Bad comedy. It was yeah. the worst I've ever seen. Ever. And I don't, I mean. Damn bad in every one of them i saw about 10 of them in a row like was it a show or an open mic it was an open mic open mics are tough but i mean but usually in an open mic there are some funny people in an open mic yeah this was like we're, we're funny went to die yeah bad. but but your show has such a a, a great mix of creativity there's stories of all types and then there's some other pieces like i did the stand-up comedy some people can do music but it is such a i just think there's a lot of different ways to tell a story so it, it can be comedy it can be music it can be dancing when we were doing it on zoom somebody did pole dancing we've had burlesque we've had people do, like read the thing while somebody else danced to it mm -hmm. whatever whatever you want to do to tell your story i love it because there are like the moth is a little more polished. There's a couple of things out there that are really polished and they're very well done and all that stuff. But there's just something human mm -hmm. about going and seeing people just not, they're not always so articulate. Mm -hmm. They're not always, they stumble on what they're saying and thinking, but it's so real and you can tell that it is so personal. Yeah. And there's so much heart in that. And I would, I, to me, I'm drawn way more to that than polished public speakers, you know, who have done this for a long time. And people have stories. People have, it's remarkable. That's one of the things I'm loving about doing this is sure. people have freaking stories that are amazing. But how would you know if you don't ask them? You would never. And you might not ever have a chance to sit and, you know, be in front of mics and say, hey, start from the beginning of your yeah. life and tell me all about you. But it's so cool. And I, I've I've enjoyed it every single time. And it's been very different every time because the people because every person is different. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just the coolest thing. What are some of the funniest things you've ever seen on there in five years? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, not to put you on the spot or anything. Sure, sure. Uh, let's see. My friend Bowie um told a story about pretending to be like a birthday stripper cop knocking, but at his parents' house, and then he had a dance with. We have a a dinosaur on the stage, right? Like a blow up dinosaur mm -hmm. named named Clark, because I thought the stage looked boring, so mm -hmm. we needed a mascot, and so we just put Clark up there. My partner thought bought it and was like this is this is now the mascot and so Bowie danced with the with Clark afterwards that was pretty incredible so he's he's he showed up at his parents house as a stripper and Bowie is a very funny person and 
I mean, assuming, you know, I mean, parents know their kids. They probably weren't phased at all. If, you, if you're if you're the hype that would do that. Think, yeah. I, I, think, I don't know how happy they were. and But the story was incredible. I mean, we've... It's just gone all, it really runs the the gamut of mm-hmm. like happy to sad. People have gone up there and like really struggled to finish their story because they were crying so hard. Mm-hmm. People who are just like so anxious that they like start crying and like they've never spoken into a microphone before in their entire right. lives. All the way up to like, I'm laughing off stage so hard. Like I can't, like I need a moment right. before I go back up and like, and do the thing. And public speaking is, uh, I mean, it's like the top fear. Like. When you ask yeah. people, what are they most afraid of? Public speaking is, is I mean, uh, it's the top, you know, and I mean, not everybody. I love public speaking. To me, it's fun. I enjoy it. I get that high off of yeah. it like you did when you, you did your first one there. But that is such a, a small majority of people. It's fun because um, now I just ask anybody. I'll like, right. ask my bartender. I'll ask a, uh, a, I will ask the person in the next booth over at a restaurant. I've left my cards in weird places because I overheard people having like an interesting conversation. I'll just like ask anyone. Uh-huh. And it's fun because sometimes you'll get um there's like definitely some like professional storytellers I've had that are like they're really they are very good at storytelling. They've done it a million times. And it's almost kind of boring. Right. They like they're too polished, too smooth. It's clearly a story they've prepared and prepped and it's really, really good. And they can just like go and they rattle it off. And it's almost like not that great anymore. Right. Because they've lost the passion of it. Yeah. It, it It's just like too, it's, it's almost, it's like a product. It's become a product instead of like just like a human. And like some of the, my favorite stories I've ever heard are people like my friend Jason, who used to work with me. Um, He was like in the fiscal department and I had never really talked to him much. And I was like, I'm doing this thing. I don't suppose. And he was like, yeah, I would totally do that. And came and told a story. He cried during it. And, and it was this incredible like love story about his wife and how his wife is like Meryl Streep and he's like Nicolas Cage. And it was like, everybody was just like, it was so incredible. But like, it was just like this random dude in fiscal that I never would have thought to ask. You just don't ask everybody. Because right. why not? I mean, literally everybody has a story. I mean, they, they, you've existed this long, so you, you have experienced things. You, you know? just don't always know how to like form it as a story. Right. And you give such a cool platform for that. And I've seen lately that you've even kind of morphed in, and you're doing even more creative things. Like recently you did, um, was it this last week that you did it in a different, you did it in a different way. I'm trying to remember from your post. Was it the Groundhog yeah, I show? Think it, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. That was just on Thursday. Yep. Time. What is time? time? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the, so I've been doing the show for a long time, and I have uh, been just trying to figure out how to like branch out and do just a little bit more stuff and practice uh-huh. some other skills and, and be more involved with other people. And so, the folks that run the Seven Deadly Sins series of, of storytelling shows, right? I'm friends with Todd and Alina, and so I hit them up and asked them if they wanted to like collaborate on a show. And so we came up with a premise. They do a show called Pants on Fire. Mm-hmm. where they have all of these people come up and do stories and they're all definitely true except one's a liar right and so this one we did for groundhog day was the flip of that so all of them were lies and only one was the truth oh yeah <laughs> um and when we picked who was going to tell the true story and they told what the story was going to be we picked two things from that story and the, everybody's story had to include those two things oh, that's yeah. the groundhog day yeah part of it right um so we hope that i was the host of that show and like curated the lineup of that 
and uh, it. Oh, and then we had a Bill Murray costume contest during intermission. <laughs> yeah, which did not work. Oh no, because people did not do it. Um, and so in the moment, we decided that it would become the a uh, Bill Murray costume contest. And if you could come up here and explain to me why your outfit counted and be convincing enough, I'll right. take it. Right. Uh, or if nobody could do that, anybody could come up and do a groundhog impression. <laughs> uh, and we did get two people to come up and do groundhog impressions and we're able to give them a prize for that. It was very silly. And then we um, at White Eagle, you have to if you do a show earlier, you have to like take up the whole evening. And normally they do bands afterwards. We decided to do a comedy show. And so I also like curated like my first comedy lineup of, of like just not storytellers, but like just comedians. And you had, for sure and, did not have any of those guys over there last night. I promise you did not. <laughs> no, my lineup was stellar. My people did great. Um, so yeah, I'm just trying to like branch out a little bit. I'm on this coming week. I'm on like a Planned Parenthood fundraiser mm-hmm. um, storytelling show about bad dates. Oh. And... There's, yeah, I'm just trying to get involved with other I wish other I'd have, stuff. I wish I'd have known about that one because I could have taken up three, four spots in that. <laughs> a few bad dates in your life? <laughs> a few bad dates. Mm-hmm. The magician ventriloquist, you know. I mean, like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. although if I could find him now, he'd be you great. You probably for, interview him for He'd this? be great for this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, I think that that's so cool. So where... What are some other creative things that you're thinking of of doing? Or like, I wish I could do, or I want to eventually go this direction. I've kind of thought about podcasting. Podcasting seems hard. Um, <laughs> it's a piece of cake. Clearly. I'm just going to tell you, this is the second take. We <laughs> had to stop in the middle, or well, at the beginning, because my record wasn't on. Piece of cake. It's totally fine. Not a problem. Um, so I thought about that, and then I don't, I don't know. I just... I'm not sure if I feel that passionate about this part of it versus the like live nature right. of a show. Um, so I've been trying to think like and be creative about, I, f- I feel like I just want to do different types of shows in different spots. Mm-hmm. They can bring people together in like random ways. There's a show in town um, that's called like poetry out the window. And it literally started because this person was just like reading poetry at their apartment window and people would gather underneath the window. Wow. And I'm like, that's smart. Like it's it's free. People just like show up and yeah. and they in like lawn chairs and just like sell this like area of a sidewalk, and it's big enough that they've had to like um close area like down a little bit. <laughs> like that that's really smart. How can I do that? Like how can I find other things? I've I've also thought about doing um some like dinner party and a show in my backyard because we moved to a house with a really nice backyard. So but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's coming up next. But I keep just saying, like, if anybody has anything, I would like to come yell my story at you. Oh, yeah. At whatever your event is. Is it a birthday party and I'm the only one doing it? I don't care. I would like to just come yell these stories because I mostly write because I always perform at my show, too. Right. And then I write a story. And for the most part, I read it. And then the end. It, it like, never sees the light of day again. Right. You you talked about writing. Um, You talked about writing, having a passion for that and, and being interested in that is as a young person, but mm-hmm. that, that it's recently kind of reared its head again. What is, what does that look like for you other than writing these little stories for, I don't write anything other than the stories for oh, these shows. <laughs> um, I am tremendously bad at doing anything if there's not a deadline oh, and yeah, the shows too. are really good for that because I'm like, Oh God, it's in like 42 hours. Mm-hmm. I probably should prepare it. Um, and then I like whip something up normally the, the night before, um, because I just can't without that pressure, nothing, nothing happens. Oh, I ADD right here, medicated yeah, still, it's tough, man. Still, Brains, rough, rough there's, there's other things happening up there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I also, I, I don't know, one of, my, one of the thoughts I've had is trying to do like a little chat book or something and like putting them in like a book people could actually take because people will be like, where can I find more of your writing? And I'll be like, no place at all. Mm, right. It's like, there's no blog. There's no publishing. They come to this show next time and yeah. you'll hear one story that you'll never hear again. Uh, and so it'd be cool to have like something to actually like hand people that they could take with them. You know, I, it would be very cool to have a book of the stories that people tell. I've thought about trying to put things together like you that. Know, I mean, and, like just right off the top of it. Yeah. I've, thought, I've definitely thought about like the IPRC, the Independent, Independent Publishing Resource Center. Mm-hmm. They have like a bookbinding machine that you can pay to use huh. and to do just like small runs of stuff. And so I've thought about trying to do that. Um, I feel like I need other people involved. Yeah, that's um, not a that's not a one man job. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel like I want other people involved to make that happen. And also, I hate collaborating with people because I get um, I get very I, I'd like to be in control. Control. Um, because if it's I'm in control of it, I know everything will go correctly. Mm-hmm. And if I if it doesn't, I know why, and I can fix it. Mm-hmm. And when I collaborate, it's oh, but something's going wrong, and it's not I, it's not my fault. But I also can't fix it. Right. I don't know what to do. Yeah, it's, it's madness. Yeah. Yeah. You and I are more like saying, uh than I ever even knew. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, yeah, because you need sometimes that support. But also, you'll go insane when you have to deal with other people who don't have your exact vision. Mm-hmm. And don't follow what you think. Or have the same yeah. amount of like, I really want this show to go, right? Like, the passion. The, oh, I know. That's why, that is why. A podcast is kind of cool because, you know, created it. It's all my, my vision, my idea. I mean, I don't yeah. have any control over what happens on the other mic, but that, that's part of the fun of it, too. You kind of do, st- actually, because you're still going to be able to, like, edit it. Oh, so yeah. if somebody says something weird or or you're, the whole interview is just like, oh, no. Like, I did I not. Now, one thing I haven't figured out is if it's a bad interview, which, thank God, I'm not, I have had the best. Yeah, knock on wood. The best. But- it's going to happen at one point. Yeah. Then I, do I just go, hey, I'm sorry, but you're I, not as weird as I thought you were. <laughs> I have heard of people just saying that, like, something happened to the recording. Technical. I'm really sorry. It it just couldn't. There was something. There was, like, a feedback that we couldn't get out of it. I'm, I'm going to cut this part out in case I ever yep. have to uh, do that to somebody. For sure. Just never say. <laughs> I don't think. I, I, I really have found just awesome people. So, I mean, it, I, you know, I really want people to come to your shows and to come see what you've created because um, not only is it so full of heart and you can tell that there's so much energy that gets put into it, um, but there's also a lot of, I mean, it feels very Portland. It feels very weird and odd sometimes. And it can be really awkward oh, at moments. And I, but I absolutely love that about What's it. What's more human than that? Nothing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's such a cool thing. And you definitely need to go, but you also need to sign up because you have a story. You have a story that just feels like, I just wish I could tell other people about this. It's such a perfect, perfect to do that at. Um, I mean, yeah, people get really in their head about like not being able to have a story or not understand what the story is. But like everybody has like leaned across the bar and told their friends something that happened like over their drink or their soda or whatever. Everybody has done that. You you are all telling stories all the time. All the time. So just close your eyes and forget that there's an audience and just think about like telling it just to your buddy 
about your weird life. <laughs> right. Because it's going to be weird to everybody else because it's not theirs. Right. I was once told at a party that, um, you know, Christine, you just have a story for every story that somebody else tells. But it was done in such a hateful way in you know, front so of that, all my other friends. And I was, I, I, I immediately shut down. I was like, I need to stop. Yeah. But then I, now I'm here. I'm like, hell yeah, work out. Tell some stories. Let's yeah. tell some stories, people. No, it, it's so cool. It's, it really is just, it's neat to see such a creative journey to get to where you are now. And I mean, it's so cool. The things that you're, that you're looking into and all this collaboration, I think that we need we need this for, collaboration, whether I like it or not. Well, but whether yes. you like it or not, but you try. but I it try. gets you into it gets you into avenues that you may not be in otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to practice letting go of control, but I'm not good at it yet. I'm not good at it either. I don't know how to nope. do that. We'll see one day. You know, I'm almost fifty. I'm sure it'll happen when I'm even more set in my ways. <laughs> uh, but no, this is so cool, and I look forward to seeing even more unique projects that you have going on and seeing more stories and stuff. I know you're always looking for people to come and mm-hmm. and stand up there. And it's not scary. It's not scary. It's fun. And it's it's such a welcoming, loving environment. People are not That's there what to I was judge thinking too. you. Like the crowd wants you to do good and will like bend over backwards to like help you do well. They are so supportive. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's really one of the most, it's kind of like, you know, you're talking about working in the the porn store, you know, people being nervous and, but you're not nervous because you're like, um, this is what I do all day long. It's fine. It's good. You don't have to be nervous to ask me questions about mm-hmm. dildos. But the same is true in, in your environment that you are in I now. I feel like that should be the pull quote from, from this. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you know, it, it might be. Yeah. But you're in that same situation where you have a supportive environment that could be scary and intimidating and nerve wracking, but you're in such a supportive nurturing environment yeah everybody's there to you know to be there for you um it's such a cool thing it's so cool yeah people are really excited for you too right to enjoy yourself and and do it up Mm -hmm. yeah i i i felt 1000 percent support even when i did my stand-up comedy which is way different than storytelling yeah so i highly recommend it yeah and i especially want people to come that are like not white and not cis Mm -hmm. and just we, the the show is for everybody right um and it's easier to have the feel the show feel like everybody if everybody's actually there right i've definitely had folks of color be like i don't want to perform to an all-white audience and then but also like audience members have been like i don't want to see an all-white lineup and it's so what anything that i can ever do to be able to get more people feel like the room is for them too right and i i mean i feel the same way about here so we have to make sure that they were creating those environments i that- want um, <laughs> to tell you about the thing, the show that I've had that I'm the most proud of. Oh, please. Um, which was the ghost show. I, so the ghost show is, um, so a few years ago for new, for a new year's resolution, I decided I was going to learn how to draw. And then I was like, oh my God, drawing is really hard. I don't like doing things that I'm bad at. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, at that point I started sketching ghosts, um, in the margins of all of my like work papers and on like post-it notes and stuff, because you cannot tell me that. Uh, my rendering of a ghost is not photorealistic right. because you cannot prove that. Right. So I think my ghosts are exactly what ghosts look like. <laughs> my ghosts happen to have two different sized eyes that are kind of crooked. They wear combat boots and they have sometimes, and they have really knobby knees. I don't know why my ghosts have uh, skeletons, but they do. Um, and they're very anxious and they shake a lot. Mm-hmm. And I like them very much and I draw them on everything now. And so then I just got like really into ghost stuff because it also kind of represents like all the folks that we lose at work. So it kind of like has all these different elements that are right. part of it. 
Um, I also moved into what I think is a haunted house recently. Uh, and so I decided to, like to be really self-serving and create the ghost show. So last October we had the ghost show. It was in a much bigger venue than we normally do. And I really wanted to like do it up and have it be a giant event. And I was very, very scared that nobody was going to come and that I was going to be out so much money for renting all of these things. Um, the regular show at the, at the chapel theater where we normally do our stuff um, is like 30 to 60 people come mm-hmm. on average. Uh, and the ghost show was just like, if, if we can at least get enough people in this, in the seats to like pay for everything. Right. I just didn't want to go into the red. I really right. just didn't want to owe any money. Um, and so, but we really, we, we did it up. We had, it was like a maker's fair. So we had all these vendors like selling creepy things. I had like ceramicists come with like ghosts with like, with cups that had ghosts like engraved in them. Um, we had like stained glass. We had all these like cool vendors. We had a bakery come and do like all these like ghost shaped treats. Um, we had a tattoo van come and do ghost tattoos we had um a live screen printer come and do i like drew a picture of ghosts singing at a bar um at a table with some balloons and so we had that um they could get live screen printed on like whatever piece of clothing you brought with you Mm -hmm. um and then we had live music and then we had a whole bunch of people um do we had a dancer uh, and then we had a whole bunch of people do um stories that involve ghosts uh and then we had some people come up in sheets and do what their obituaries might say. Um, and then I did my piece and the night went so great. And it was the first show I've ever made money at um, because we sold 130 tickets wow. pre-sale and then more people bought them at the door. So I think we probably had close to 200 people there. Oh my God. And I, um, I was so nervous and it was like the most like self-serving thing. I was like, what if I make a show that's about all the things that I like for me. Right. Um, and then I did that and it was perfect. And I think that my passion for it and interest and like, we really tried hard. I took a million pictures of like my partner in a sheet, um, to be a ghost and like weird spots. I hope you did it up here, not down here. It's okay if ghosts look big. <laughs> okay. Um, that's actually okay if anyone looks big. Right, but, right. Um, I think ghosts just have different beauty standards though. Right. Uh, and we like hung posters up around town. We like, we really went for it. And it we totally blew it out of the water. It was so successful. So if you are nervous about the thing, just if you think if you are excited enough about it, that your passion will overflow for it and people will go. I, that is awesome. You know, it will never cease to amaze me that so many of my guests felt like outsiders growing up in some way or another. And to see how they've come to their own is remarkable. But yet it's not. They were always this incredible, amazing person. They always had potential to be great. They just didn't always have nurturing resources and environment. I can relate to that so much. I have a wonderfully supportive family, but I wasn't raised in a community that encouraged weird. And once I found that community and environment and those friends, I started to not only accept who I was, but celebrate it. This year, I plan on being more extra and I'll find a place where all of this is just fine. To see the dates and times of Jasmine's Telltale events, follow the links below. I highly recommend that you check them out. I also highly re- recommend that you get on stage and try it out yourself. And then join us next week as we find out how our local UPS driver handles seeing you do naked yoga through your glass door. And for more episodes of Finding My Own Weird, like and subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcast or you can subscribe to my YouTube channel below to find out how I'm finding my own weird.